Another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, with episode 422. Of course, it is 422 2010, because this is the week of dates matching up with show numbers to try to confuse me. Uh, what are we going to talk about today? Well, today is Earth Day. We are to save the planet today. We are to save the planet, and most importantly, you are to save the planet by reducing your carbon footprint. Well, look, despite what some people think about me because of how I feel about that nonsense, uh, I am actually a huge environmentalist. I believe that it's a good idea to have an Earth Day. I just wish it wasn't so political and a little more focused on reality. So I'm going to focus on a real environmental problem today. The destruction caused by agriculture and how self-destructive it is because of what it's doing to the agricultural system. And these are going to be problems. Now, I'm going to tell you in advance what your solution is. Get involved and grow your own food. But we're not going to talk about that a lot today. I want you to know what's really going on out there. So I've got these are all recent news stories. Most of them are from... Let's call them large publications. Well, necessarily they're all from mainstream. Some are definitely from mainstream media. Verifiable that these things are going on. Uh, you can find multiple sources on them if you want to. I will give you the sources that I have today. I'll review parts of these articles. I'll tell you what I think about. I'll tell you what's happening to our planet. And we'll have a real Earth Day today where we focus on an actual problem. And, of course, we've already talked many times about what the solution is, but I'll throw a little bit of that in with it. Instead of talking about a fictitious problem, how about that? And I promise you, that's the last I'll mention that has anything to do with global warming today. I won't beat that up. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors, because they do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Survival Seed Bank. We're talking about growing vegetables. That's what Survival Seed Bank lets you do. But what is a survival seed bank? Is it a bunch of seeds that you buy to plant tomorrow morning? You could. They would grow. You'd get great results out of it, but not really what it's designed for. There's less expensive ways to buy seeds that you want to plant tomorrow. A survival seed bank is designed to put those seeds away for a long time, 5, 10, 20 years, to make sure that you have a store of seed in the future. So check out Survival Seed Bank. It's like your own little seed vault. And maybe you're actually going to build your own seed vault, preserve your own seeds. This might be a great start in that direction, develop a tremendous personal seed vault like the rest of the world is doing up in the Arctic Circle. All right, next up is Shelf Reliance. I love Shelf Reliance. They sent me a shelf that I did a video review of. You can check out on YouTube. Absolutely amazing company, very innovative ideas, and their storage solutions are some of the best that I've ever seen. I really want you to check them out. Check out my video, and I hope you choose to do business with ShelfReliance.com. I know you won't regret that choice if you do. Outstanding people. I'm actually expecting sometime in the future to possibly have the owner of ShelfReliance.com on the show for an interview. That'll be exciting. Next up, I want you to make sure that you're connecting with us. We have a lot of ways to do that. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube are the primary ones. Friend us. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. That helps us a lot. The more subscribers we have, uh, the more value we can we can give to folks. Uh, friend us on, on uh, Facebook. I have a fan page. You can join that. You can be my personal friend on Facebook. I'm not like a lot of... Uh, I guess people that are in the public eye were like, I'll let you join my fan page, but I won't be your friend. I'm, 
come on. So come on, come all. And if you friend me on Facebook, I'll friend you back. It might take a day or two or a week or two, depending on when I log in. But I'll do it. Um, and make sure you, you, you follow us on Twitter if you use Twitter. Last but not least, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll get discounts from about 20 different vendors, some really great ones, including some of our sponsors. For instance, Shelf Reliance will give you 7%. That's a 7, which is one higher than 6 and one lower than 8. 7% off of every single thing on their website if you're an MSB member. So check out uh, Shelf Reliance once again and check out the MSB. Again, that is the Member Support Brigade. It comes down to you support my show because you're a listener, and, and I look to you as my primary means of support for the show because you're the audience that I serve. And uh, you do that at a contribution of about two dimes an episode or 20 cents. So consider that today. All right, and with that, we're going to go ahead and move into the main topic of today, which is the damage being done to our planet by agriculture and why real solutions aren't coming anytime soon. And the solutions that are coming aggravate the problems. And again, I've got six articles. And one's kind of a positive article, but I'm going to explain why it's really not. And that's the one we say for the end. And we're going to go through them and we're going to talk about them. And we're going to talk about what it means and how it's affecting the global food supply. What it's already doing to prices and what it's going to mean in the future. Here's the thing, guys. I, my problem with modern America and the modern world, to be fair, all the developed nations throughout the world where nobody, you know, makes a living with a shovel in their hand, it seems, anymore, at least not a shovel and a hoe and maybe an old-style plow, is that we have lost touch with the reality of where the hell our food comes from. Uh, I, I want to throw, I keep forgetting to mention this show, and I'm going to mention it now, and if you haven't watched it, go watch the previous episodes online, start watching on TV if you have uh, TV in your house. This is a show that everybody needs to watch, it's called Jamie Oliver's Food Revolution. I absolutely love Jamie Oliver, I love what he's doing here. He went to this town in West Virginia that's uh, known fairly or unfairly as the fattest town in America, let's face it, there's a lot of fat towns in America and uh, the town people that, that live there that run the town don't really like the label, and they were resistant to him at first, I guess, because they didn't want any more negative stigma. But one way or another, he went to this town, and he got a hold of three schools, a middle school, uh, a, uh, an elementary school, and, and a uh, high school, and he's running these programs to change what our kids are eating because of the crap our kids eat in school. But what really struck me is he was talking to this group of grade school kids, and he held up a potato, not... A zucchini, not some you know rare thing that Jack Spearco tells you to grow like wolfberry or or amaranth or something like that. A potato, and these kids eat French fries every day. The majority of the children in that classroom didn't know what the hell it was. And this is West Virginia. You would think that a place like West Virginia, most people would know what vegetables are. Uh, it was unbelievable to me, and I love what this guy's doing, so check that out. But I brought it up because it makes my point that Americans and modern, uh, modern people throughout the world have gotten to this point where we think when we walk into a grocery store, that is the source of our food. That is not the source of our food. It is the end in a long chain of systems designed to get the food from a place where people work and sweat and toil and let's be honest, in the, in the case of animal food, where things die so that we may eat. And I'm not going to apologize for that. I'll kill a cow to eat it. 
It doesn't hurt my feelings at all. But I'm also in touch with the fact that that was a living creature that had to be raised from a very small calf, very carefully, in a, in a very appropriate way, uh, so that it would survive long enough to become of the right size, so that it could be slaughtered so that I could eat it. And somebody worked very hard to make that happen. That if I'm eating corn, somebody had to grow that. If I'm eating an onion, somebody had to grow that. If I'm eating a potato, somebody had to grow that. If it's a pepper, somebody had to grow it. Somebody had to pick it. Somebody had to care for it. Somebody had to ship it. And there are a dozen or more major systems and a tremendous number of minor systems that allow that food to go from the, the fruit of somebody's toil in the field to actually get to a place where it's brightly lit and packaged with shiny packages so that we can buy it. Now, why is that important? It's because this disconnection between the food and the reality behind the food has allowed the corporate powers that be to industrialize food and do terrible things to food. From a genetic standpoint, from a treatment standpoint, and from a point that they're damaging the very golden goose that lays the egg in the form of the land and the soil and the water. And no one cares because no one looks at where the food comes from. No one even understands where the food comes from. And that's why the things that I'm going to tell you about today have been allowed to happen. And this affects you. If you don't think this affects you, if you're going, nah, Jack's going on one of these other political shows or something like that, or environmentalism, and I don't know how this affects my survival. Did you eat today? Do you want to eat tomorrow? Do you want to eat the next day? Do you want your kids to be able to eat when you're old and, and uh, moldy and in the ground, and they're left and you're gone? Is the survival that you seek today just for yourself? Are you that selfish? Or are you thinking about the survival of your children and your grandchildren? Just like we get pissed off, folks, over our government spending and realize that a lot of the problems it creates, we might have to deal with, but definitely our children and grandchildren will have to deal with. That we're angry about what we're leaving behind. You better look at food the same way, because in some ways what we're doing there is a lot worse. Let's start out with a story today that was sent to me by a listener. I had three great stories come in that coincided with this show today from listeners. So you guys must be in sync with me or something. But what this is called is peak phosphorus. Now, I had never heard of peak phosphorus before. I didn't know that phosphorus was a problem, other than I know it's being depleted from our soil like everything else. But, you know, I didn't realize that, that phosphorus was the commodity that it is and that it could one day lead to war and disputes over borders. Let me read a little bit to you. This is... Uh, from uh, foreignpolicy.com, and it is called Peak Phosphorus, and I'll give you a link. Uh, today's show notes will have a link to all of these stories, and it's by a guy named James Elser and another guy named Stuart White. I guess they, they collaborated on this story. Here's the intro. From Kansas to China, Sichuan province, farmers treat their fields with phosphorus-rich fertilizer to increase the yield of their crops. What happens next, however, receives relatively little attention. Large amounts of this resource are lost from farm fields through soil erosion and runoff and down-swirling toilets through our urine and feces. Although seemingly mundane, this process cannot continue indefinitely. Our dwindling supply of phosphorus, a primary component underlying the growth of global agricultural production, 
threatens to disrupt food security across the planet during the coming century. He says, this guy's not staying tomorrow. Or these guys aren't saying tomorrow. This is the gravest natural resource shortage you've never heard of. And i got to be fair to them, I hadn't heard of it either. Now, is this a new phenomenon? No. The root of this problem, I'm back to the, the article now, the root of this problem has been the subject of presidential concern. In a message to Congress in 1938, United States President Franklin Delano Roosevelt warned that the phosphorus content of America's agricultural land had, quote, has greatly diminished, end quote. This shortage, Roosevelt warned, could cause low crop yields, poor quality produce, uh, detrimentally affecting the physical health and economic security of the people of the nation. Phosphorus is used extensively for a variety of key functions in all living things, including the construction of DNA and cell membranes, and is relatively rare in Earth's crust. Something else I didn't know. Phosphorus was relatively rare. A lack of phosphorus is often the limiting factor in the growth of plants and algae. In humans, it plays an essential role in bone formation. Without a steady supply of this resource, global agricultural production will face a bottleneck. And humankind's growing population will suffer serious nutrition shortage. So... Bad as that is, let me, I'm gonna skip the middle of this thing, and then I'm gonna tell you what I think about it after I read, uh, the last paragraph, or last two paragraphs. Um, the geographic concentration of phosphate mines, and what I'm skipping here, I'll, I'll fill you in a little bit of it. The main way we get phosphorus is by mining it from formations from, uh, ocean, uh, uh, living animals from the past. So with these deep mines that are basically phosphoric rock, that are from sediments where there used to be oceans and now there's not oceans there anymore because of continental drift. So that's enough to fill in the center. So the geographic concentration of phosphate mines also threatens to usher in an era of intense resource competition. Get this one. And I guess this is good news for us in a way. Nearly 90% of the world's estimated phosphorus reserves are found in five countries. Morocco, China, South Africa, Jordan, and the United States. In comparison, the 12 countries that make up the OTEC cartel control only 75% of the world's oil reserves. This fact could spark international tension and even influence how countries attempt to draw their international boundaries. Many of Morocco's phosphate mines are in Western Sahara, a disputed independent territory that is occupied by Morocco and the site of growing international human rights concerns. Reflecting these concerns, UN-sanctioned export restrictions on phosphate and other resources are now in place through the efficacy of of the bands, though the efficacy of the bands is incomplete. China, the country with the largest phosphorus reserves after Morocco, imposed a 135% tariff on the resource as part of the 2008 complex series of events in which rising fuel and fertilizer costs led to rapid increases in food prices. The tariff effectively eliminated exports, although the tariff was subsequently lifted as the 2008 food crisis faded, the implosion of this sort of trade barrier could become a regular occurrence as supplies dwindle worldwide. And it continues to a second page, but I'll let you read the rest of the article if you want to. Let's talk about what this means. One of the things I skipped in there was an important statistic, and that would be... Um, that right now, the Global Phosphorus Research Institute estimates that there will not be sufficient phosphorus supplies for mining to meet agricultural demand within 30 to 40 years. 
So we're on this 30 to 40 year timeline of where we can get phosphorus out of the ground. Here's the thing. We don't have another way to get it in large uh, industrial type uh, measures. It's not there. There's no other place. We can't go get a phosphorus meteor, phosphorus meteor and tow it to Earth. Phosphorus comes from life. It's not alive now. It's dead. But it was life. It was created by life. It was created by little ocean creatures and little shelled creatures in, in the seas. But it is in our crust, and it is in our gardens, and there's phosphorus in my garden. There's plenty of phosphorus in bone as long as you're eating phosphorus. That's the problem. It starts to weaken your bones. It can be as damaging to, the, to bone loss as not getting enough calcium. In fact, the two kind of need each other. This is important, and what they're saying here is we have 30 to 40 years. And you say, people always say, Jack, that we have 30 to 40 years. What if we have 100 years? What if it's not going to affect you? Remember what I said about your grandchildren? What if they're wrong by two and a half times? We're still at 100 years, folks. We're out of this stuff, and we're going to have wars over it. Phosphorus. How ridiculous is that? But I want, I want to read one part of this again to you. Morocco, China, and Af Africa, uh, sorry, Morocco, China, South Africa, Jordan, the United States have 90% of the world's estimated phosphorus. 90%. So five countries are holding 90% of a critical element to life. We always hear about how powerful OPEC is. They only have 75% of the world's oil reserves. So our five countries hold more in phosphorus than they hold in oil. Can you live without oil? Yeah, comfortably, not without new technological developments. We can't live without phosphorus. It's essential to life. Now, why is there a shortage of this stuff anyway? Well, because we're destroying the soil and it's running away. See, it, it, here's the deal. You put phosphorus in the field by amending the soil, by com you know, composting other plants, by uh, adding bone meal, by adding commercially gathered phosphorus in the form of, of fertilizer, you do any of that stuff, and there's only three things that can happen with the phosphorus. It can stay in the field, because it's not used by the plants in the field yet, so there's more than is necessary, so it stays there in reserve. The plants take it up and use it for growth, or three, it runs off in the form of soil erosion. And those are the only three options. No phosphorus berry comes and makes the phosphorus go away. So what we're doing is allowing the phosphorus to run out with soil erosion into our rivers and streams and eventually out to the ocean to be lost. It's still there, but there's no way for us to reclaim it at that point. And what that means is in the future, this mass-scale agricultural production that we're doing will not be sustainable. From this one fact alone, I've talked about in the past many other reasons why that's the case. So this is one. Let's move on to something else, all right? Uh, this next article uh, is from AOL News. So I told you some of this is mainstream. And it is called, Time Water Running Out for America's Biggest Aquifer. Before I read from the article, I want to tell you what an aquifer is in case you don't know. It's an underground lake, and in some cases, the big ones, uh, which are like the Ogallala, which is what we're going to talk about today, they're so large you would call them an underground freshwater sea. Uh, the Ogallala Aquifer, also known as the High Plains Aquifer, runs from almost the Canadian border down into the Texas Panhandle. 
and, and, and a fairly wide swath throughout the Great Plains. So now you know what an aquifer is, so the rest of this will make sense. I read the beginning of this article for you, and this is, uh, do they have the author's name here anyway? David, uh, Dave Thier, uh, contributor to AOL News. Uh, April 21st, so again, very current story. In 1823, a government surveyor named Stephen Long was working to map out the Great Plains, an expansive land acquired along with the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. He was unimpressed by what he saw, as his geographer wrote in the report that accompanied the expedition. I do not hesitate in giving the opinion that it is almost wholly unfit for cultivation and, of course, uninhabitable by people depending upon agriculture for their substance. So basically, this guy said, hey, this, we, we bought a turd here. We're not going to be able to grow anything out here. Long, and I'm back in the article, Long would have been shocked to see what the region looked like today. Not merely fit for cultivation, but in fact one of the most fertile and productive areas in the world. Since World War II, dramatic leaps in technology have allowed farmers to pump groundwater for irrigation and extend America's breadbasket through the entire Great Plains, transforming what Long called the Great American Desert into an expanse of green circles defined by the reach of central pivot irrigation systems. You know those pretty green circles you see from airplanes? But the water is not infinite. Duh. And many are becoming concerned that the Great Plains agricultural is, is just more is in a more precarious position than it appears, meaning Long's report may have not just been a description, but a prediction. That groundwater for irrigation comes from the Ogallala Aquifer, a massive underground lake that stretches from southern South Dakota through northern Texas, covering about 174,000 square miles. Why can't you see it's underground? Very, very deep. Listen to this. It's being drained at an alarming rate, and some places have already seen what happens when local levels drop below the point where water can no longer be pumped. So there's still a lot of water down there, but like any lake or sea, it has kind of varying levels, right? So there's places on it where you already can't pump anymore, can't reach it anymore, or a little, you know, little sidearm. Think of a lake, right? Think of a lake drying up. It doesn't all dry up at one time. You know, some of the arms and some of the, the stuff that's like kind of fjords and all starts to dry up first. That's what they're saying has happened. And here's the results of that. Uh, you can go to areas where the aquifer is depleted. They look pretty poor now. David Brar, program manager for U.S. Department of Agricultural Agriculture's Agriculture Research Service, uh, Ogala Aquifer Program. Boy, that's a mouthful. Told AOL News, and it only takes a full year, um, a few years. The magnitude of this is incredible, he continued. We're talking about, for the last 20 years, 20% of the irrigated acreage of this nation is over Ogala. So 20% of our irrigated land is using the Ogala Aquifer. For an idea of what a severe drought could do to the communities of the Great Plains, consider the Dust Bowl of the 1930s when gigantic black blizzards ravaged farms and forced thousands of families to give up their land and try to make a living elsewhere. Uh, skipping ahead a little bit. People have been warning about the aquifer's depletion for years, but coordinating conservation programs among farmers has proved difficult. Recently, Texas has imposed state controls on the amount of groundwater that farmers can pump, requiring 16 groundwater districts to each provide a target for an acceptable groundwater level in 50 years. Such measures, however, are mostly designed to delay the inevitable, since the recharge rate of the Ogala aquifer is small enough to be considered negligible. 
So Brower says the natural resource, as a natural resource, the Ogallala is comparable to a vein of coal. What you take out doesn't get put back in. All we're doing is buying time. This is the most important and telling thing about the future of agriculture here at the end. And this guy spins it as positive because he's probably in the end an idiot or paid for, one or the other. But buying time is important. It will allow farmers to develop dry farming techniques and give the biotech industry a chance to deliver on the promise of drought-resistant crops. But without groundwater irrigation, crop yields will almost certainly drop, and the local, national, and global economies will have to adjust. So biotech to the rescue. Monsanto to the rescue. Frankenstein-style food to the rescue. It's always the case. That's what we always hear. So here's the reality. We have this giant underground sea. Billions and trillions of gallons of water. And we pump it to the surface. And we allow it to erode our soils down into the Mississippi River. Taking the topsoil and phosphorus with it out into the ocean. Creating each summer around the Louisiana Delta uh, dead zones in places where nothing grows in the sea and everything dies. And we do this over and over and over again every year. And at the same time, the level of that lake underground that we're pumping and using to feed ourselves with is dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. And the solution is to make it drop a little bit less so that it'll last a little bit longer so that the biotech companies can create a frankenfood that will be able to survive with less water. Here's a radical idea. What if we changed the way we were growing food into a way where we were putting organic material on the soil and reducing the soil runoff and therefore the water runoff? Would that work? Last story today, when I get to it, says that it will. Genius. Absolute genius. And I'm saying that sarcastically, if you can't tell. Alright. So, we've got two big problems already that we've looked at today. Phosphorus depletion down to a point where it's going to become a commodity that nations will be willing to fight over. And five nations in the world, and I guess fortunately for us, depending on how you look at it, controlling 90% of the world's phosphorus. We've looked at the fact that the largest source of irrigation for our farmland in the middle of the United States, our breadbasket, is being depleted and has maybe 50 years worth of life left in it. And we know that's not true because other parts of it have already dried up and gone away. So we're down to, to taking this massive resource down the pockets where it's deepest and widest. Okay? And it's a resource that doesn't refill. So there's the thing. I want you to really get this. If you pump water from, I don't know, 50 feet down uh, under your land into the water table, eventually with enough rain and runoff and everything, if you pump that water table down to where you can't reach it with your well anymore, and you wait a year or two, you turn the pump back on, water comes out again. That water table goes up and down, up and down. This is not like that, this aquifer. This is a fossil aquifer. Very, very deep. That water was put down there, you know, before the time of the dinosaurs. That's how long it's been down there waiting to be used. It's trapped. And it was trapped in between movements of our continents. When it's empty, it's gone. Just like the phosphorus. Now, could it ever be replaced? 100 million, billion years or whatever? Sure. You won't be here and I won't be here. 
And there might be new phosphorus deposits as the continents move and shift and create new ones. Again, can't wait that long. So two resources we just discussed that are completely and totally finite and reaching the end. Here's the other thing to think about. We've already seen what happens when you lose water. Look at the Central Valley of California, one of the greatest producers of produce in the world, one of the most amazing agricultural things in the world. And to save a fish, they shut the pumps off for water irrigation out there, and the land has died and dried up and blow away. You want a new Dust Bowl? There's a new article out I'm not going to read today about the Midwest saying they're afraid there could be another Dust Bowl. There is one. It's in California right now. It's not one that's coming. It's already happened. And the geniuses out there are going to put solar panels in these fields now and turn it into alternative energy because they've destroyed the land by turning the water off. Well, this isn't going to be turning the water off. This is going to be the water running out. It's going to do the same thing. But I digress. Let's move on. Let's talk about a solution to agricultural problems known as Monsanto. All right? Monsanto is now bringing liberty to Pakistan is the way that I put it today. All right? Um, of course, Pakistan is uh, trying to kind of move in to more modern world, and they want to be able to to to, to export. They they want to minimize how much they have to import because they're a developing nation, and they need uh, a strong internal capacity for self-support. So one of the big problems that they have in Pakistan is growing cotton because they use it for a lot of uh, textile production and one of their big and it's not in this article but the reason for that is one of Pakistan's major exports is textiles they make t-shirts cotton t-shirts made in Pakistan right uh, you might even find some at your local store. So if they can produce the cotton and produce the t-shirt and send the t-shirt out as an export then it's a, it's a net flow of cash into the country. If they have to buy the cotton from somebody else first to make the t-shirt and send it back out, you can see how that is not as prosperous for them as, uh, as growing their own cotton. So that's one of their big motivations here that's not mentioned in the article. So who comes to the rescue? Monsanto. This is a pretty short article. I'll just read the whole damn thing to you. Uh, and this comes from, uh, who is this? Uh, TradingMarkets.com. The Great Traders. I can use the word trader here. A memorandum of understanding, a memorandum of understanding, also known as an MOU, ooh, was signed today between Monsanto Company and the government of Pakistan, which provides a framework to continue discussions focused on introducing BT cotton to Pakistan. The MOU was signed by the Federal, uh, Federal Secretary, Ministry of Food and Agriculture, uh, Zia, Zia Ur-Ramen and Rick Gottet, uh, Global Cotton Marketing Lead for Monsanto in Islamabad today. Federal Minister for Food and Agriculture, Nazir Mohammed Gundel, and the Federal Minister for Textile Industry, Rana Mohammed Fagwu uh, Saeed Khan, uh, we're also present at the occasion. Monsanto is currently working with the industry and government stakeholders in Pakistan on a sustainable business model uh, for the introduction of BT cotton. A sustainable business model. Isn't that great? Not a sustainable agriculture. Monsanto plans to introduce uh, Bulgard II cotton technology, which is undoubtedly the most extensively studied cotton technology globally. The rigorous scientific studies uh, conducted demonstrate that the Bolligard and its products are safe for the environment and human beings, animals, and agriculture. Don't worry, it's perfectly safe 
to genetically modify cotton and put it into the biosphere. Don't worry about it at all. We believe BT cotton technology will bring significant benefits for the Pakistan cotton farmers in terms of contributing towards increasing yields and farm income, said Rick Doddick, Global Cotton Farming Marketing Lead for Monsanto. That's what they always say. I'll hold here until I get done. For the past several years, Pakistan has been a net importer in excess of 2 million bales due to an acute shortage of cotton production. Pakistan needs to increase its bulk production of cotton. Biotechnology is one tool that can help increase the productivity of Pakistan agriculture, uh, worldwide millions of farmers in over 20 countries are already reaping the benefits of the agri-biotechnology. Monsanto Corporation is a leading, leading global provider of technology-based solutions and agricultural products that improve the farm productivity and food quality. It sounds like a press release, doesn't it? Monsanto Pakistan has also been associated... Monsanto, Pakistan. Do they have a division there now, I guess? Has been associated with Pakistan farmers since 1998. Monsanto, Pakistan is already doing business in a range of superior products like DeKalb hybrid corn and Roundup herbicide. That's good stuff, guys. Bulgar BT cotton contains an insecticide protein from naturally occurring soil microorganisms, Bacillus thuringiensis. Uh, Thuringiensis, okay? Ballard insect protected cotton is used widely around the world for the control of bollworms. It does read like a press release at the end. Um, so here's what's going on. Monsanto's taking this biotech cotton into Pakistan, and they're taking other things, obviously, since 1998 they've been working over there. But this is what companies like Monsanto and the West in general do to poor nations like Pakistan. You go in and you promise increased yields. You'll have more. It'll be great. Uh, you kind of leave out the part about, well, you'll need our chemicals and you'll need this and you'll become dependent upon us and you won't be able to save your own seed anymore and you'll have to pay us a licensing fee every year for the rest of eternity. So what happens is you sell the government on it and you do that in a country like Pakistan, how? By buying your way in the door. So you throw a billion dollars at them or something like that so they can drive around in nice fancy cars and wear expensive jewelry under their robes uh, and you buy your way in the door. And then the crap gets forced on the farmer. And the farmers are told from their government, hey, you need to use this because it's in the best interest of you and the country. So they have to do that. So then what happens is they, they can't just like save their seed every year, so their costs go up, and they need certain chemicals to go along with it. Because if you're going to put Roundup-ready product in the ground, then you're going to spray it with Roundup. That makes sense, right? You wouldn't put Roundup-ready uh, soy in the ground if you weren't going to spray Roundup. So now you have to buy the chemicals, so that further increases your cost. And at the end of the year, if you do get a little bit of extra production out of it, maybe an increase in yield of 10% or something like that, well, it sounds really good, except your cost went up by more than that. So the only thing you really need to do is kind of ramp this stuff up now that you've seen the 10% increase, and if you just keep doing it, it'll get better. So Mr. Farmer, take out a loan. And then the farmer takes out a loan, and next thing you know, he's an indentured servant to Monsanto in the West, and sooner or later, even the, the people at the top that sold out their country to do this crap are owned, bought, and paid for. And the U.S. and Monsanto and ConAgra and Cargill and all these people have undue influence on your nation. And the nation is in debt, and the nation begins to seize other lands that were being used by peasant farmers to grow food that people actually eat to grow shit like cotton. And that's what happens. And that's the future for Pakistan under this type of thing. And the reason I'll tell you that, 
And the reason I'll be gruff in the way that I'll tell you is because it's what's happened elsewhere. It's what's happened in Africa. It's what's happened in India. You think the Pakistanis would look south to India and go, look what they've done to India. We don't really like those guys, but don't you think they're going to do the same thing to us? But no. This is what's going on. So what we have now is biotechnology is the solution. And that can make the problem worse. And uh, I'll give you an example of exactly how making a crop more adaptable increases the problem. And before I do, I want to put it. I want to put it to you in a way that'll make sense to you, that'll make it real. Because you might look at that and go, "That sounds like you're bashing the solution." No, I'm not bashing the solution. I'm explaining that you're making the problem worse. It would be like this: Let's say that you came to me and I was a doctor, and you had a very sore knee. It was a little bit swollen, but it was in a lot of pain. And every time you walked on it, the pain got worse. Now, a good doctor is going to tell you, "Get off it." Right? Don't walk on it. Use crutches. Wrap it up. Immobilize it. Maybe you take some anti-inflammatories or something like that, but stay off it until it has time to heal. Because using it while it's injured will make the problem worse. A, a bad doctor, you know, like one from the football era of the 70s that just wants you to go back out and play again for the rest of the game, might take a hypodermic needle loaded up with some type of uh, narcotic or some type of numbing agent and pump up your knee. Now, all of a sudden, all the pain goes away. It feels wonderful. You can get up and run. I mean, it's like it never happened. It was never injured. So you go out and play some more. You go out and walk, or you go out and hike, or you go out and use the, the limb that should be being rested because it doesn't hurt, because I've solved your problem with a solution as a numbing agent. Of course, what happens? You make the injury worse. You make the problem worse. That's what happens when we have an environmental problem that's affecting sustainability, and we come up with a scientific solution to it instead of correcting the underlying issue. See if you can see the analogy here in what I'm going to talk about, because this is being heralded as a wonderful thing. This is from Food Week, the daily digest of trans-Tasman food industry news. So this is uh, you know from down under, Australia, Tasmania, places like that. Scientists develop salt-tolerant wheat. In a major breakthrough for wheat farmers in salt-affected areas. Remember that term, salt-affected areas. So I'm going to tell you what that means. CSIRO researchers have developed a salt-tolerant durum wheat that yields 25% more grain than parent variety in saline soils. Recent field trials in northern New South Wales proved that durum wheat varieties containing the new salt-tolerant genes outperformed other varieties in saline soils. Salt soils, is what that means. The breakthrough will enable wheat farmers to achieve higher yields of durum wheat in salted soil. Although durum wheat is less salt tolerant than bread wheat, it attracts a premium price because of its superior pasta making qualities. So if you buy any pasta and look at the box, you'll see the ingredients are durum wheat. It's the, the wheat that they make pasta from. Here's a quote. By planting new salt-tolerant durum wheats in different levels of salinity and comparing their yield with other durum wheats, we've demonstrated an impressive 25% yield advantage under saline soil conditions, said CSIRO scientist Dr. Richard James. The CSIRO plant industry team responsible for the breakthrough recently isolated two salt-tolerant genes, NAX1 and NAX2, derived from the old wheat relative tritium 
trictacum monocosium. Okay? Both genes work by excluding sodium, which is potentially toxic, from the leaves by limiting its passage from the roots to the shoots, said the project leader, Dr. Rana Munns. Salinity is a major environmental issue affecting much of Australia's prime wheat-growing areas, often prevents farmers from growing durum wheat. All right, that sounds pretty good. So what they did is they genetically modified the wheat, but they didn't take it from a fish or from some kind of weird thing or make it resistant to Roundup. They took an old wheat variety and brought the genes from the old wheat variety into the new wheat variety. Wheat to wheat, what are you freaked out about? I don't know. I haven't researched this yet. I have no idea exactly what the process was here and whether this has any health risk at all. It may be completely safe. It may be dangerous. I don't know. That's not my problem. Right? I'm going to let the GMO part of this go, because I'm not even sure it's G- it sounds GMO, but I have to research this one deeper. This just came in from a listener, so I haven't had time to, to dig into this one that much yet. But here's my problem. Why is the soil in Australia salty? Is it just that way? Was it always that way? No. It's because they grow food in Australia the same way we do in the United States. Giant fields... Straight lines for miles, throw the chemicals on top, spray the chemicals on top, right? Fertilizer and insecticide and herbicide. Giant tractors plow the field every year. No organic replacements to what's lost out of the soil. Irrigate, irrigate, irrigate. Eroding the soil, underlying salinity in the soil becomes higher and higher over time. If you think about it this way, if you have salt mixed in with soil, and you have water eroding the soil, the salt will erode slower than the soil. It's easier to erode dirt and sand than salt. Right? It's the salt does flow, it does erode, but slower. So as your volume of soil decreases at one rate, and the volume of salt decreases at a slower rate, the overall soil content of salt increases. So the soil is saltier this year than last and will be saltier next year than the year before. This is being caused by modern agriculture and specifically modern monoculture techniques. That's what's doing it. And up till now, the the Australian government solution has been to give farmers pumps for free so they can pump salted water out of their fields into the rivers salinating the rivers, salinating the groundwater for hundreds of miles inland in Australia. They have bull sharks, so, you know, not the occasional one. Now, they have lots of them just cruising up the river because it's that salty. And I know bull sharks can make it into fresh water. Now they're like, they're digging this, these salty rivers. And I'm not worried about somebody getting eaten by a bull shark. I'm talking about the damage being done to the ecosystem. So, instead of looking at this like the injury to the knee, and saying, okay, we need to stop doing what you're doing to the knee. Let's wrap it up, let's bandage it, let's treat the knee the way a knee needs to be treated. Instead of saying, we're destroying the land. Let's fix it. Let's stop doing this to the land. Let's stop eroding the soil. Let's change the way that, at least let's research it. Let's figure out how to do it. Let's take 10% of the land and start converting it. Let's prove it can work, and then let's go, no, 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 no. We'll just make wheat that can deal with the salt. So what's that going to do to the problem? Don't worry about the problem. Keep plowing it, keep fertilizing it, keep spraying it, keep doing it, and the fields will get saltier and saltier and saltier until we reach a point where even this wheat won't grow. Because you ain't going to grow this on the seashore, are you? 
So we'll destroy the land as long as we can fix it for another year, and another year, and another year. And why do farmers do this? Why do they play along? Because of what I told you in the last... See, all these stories are designed to connect together, to draw the big picture for you. They weren't just five stories I pulled randomly. I, I put them together in an order, specifically to help you see the bigger picture. Because the farmer ends up owing his soul to Monsanto, Cargill, Conagra, etc., he could be in a free country like the United States and he owes it directly, or he could be in a socialist country like India and he owes it indirectly through the government. But one way or another, there's so much debt that I gotta do it one more year. I gotta do it one more. I can't afford to, I'll go broke, I'll go bust, I'll lose everything. I have to do this now. They don't have a choice. And it's not just, we're talking about agriculture today. I need to do a show on meat. You wanna know the truth about meat? Watch a show called Food Inc. A lot of you have been asking about it by email with me. Yeah, I've seen it. It's unbelievable. It's got me buying only grass-fed beef. You know, it's got me buying only organically produced chicken. It's got me just turned off of everything that there is that's considered fast food or industrial produced food. It's unbelievable. I want to stay on the agriculture, though. All right? That's why, when you ask why a farmer will continue to destroy his own land, just for one more year of production, it's because he's now in a gerbil wheel. And the minute that he stops, the lights in the house go out, and the whole thing falls apart, and he loses everything. And then the industrial uh, giant comes in and grabs the land through the banks, based on the debt, turns it over to another farmer they put right back in the gerbil wheel, so he can start running and the lights can go back on. And you let the gerbil run until when? He dies. You throw another gerbil in, they're disposable. That's why I hate Monsanto. It is not just the GMOs. It is the way they manipulate the system to make the farmer a slave. And they view the humans in the chain the same way they view the livestock. Expendable. Watch Food Inc., you'll see what I mean. So what is, all the promises are bullshit, all the resources are being depleted, and the only thing that can happen is less food, so it becomes more expensive. So even the promise that, well, we'll destroy everything, but at least we'll feed everybody for the next hundred years until we can figure something else out, is a lie. So we should see food prices going up, right? Another listener, thank you very much for sending this in. Send me this story five minutes before I hit the record button. I'm like, oh, it's got to go in there right at the end. Almost at the end. Wholesale food prices rise in March as food costs jump. Wholesale prices rise by 0.7% in March due to a sharp jump in food costs. Washington, Associated Press. So this is on Yahoo News from the Associated Press, another mainstream outlet. Wholesale prices rose more than expected last month as food prices surged by the most in 26 years. Again, this is one of those ones I hate to be right about. People were asking me last year, all year long, when I was saying that we were destroying the Central Valley in California, production and food was down, well, why isn't the food prices, why aren't they going up? Why aren't we seeing the increases? I said, because it'll take a year for it to start coming out the other side. We'll have to deplete the reserves. We'll have to change things, and we also have deflation in the economy right now because it's bad. But sooner or later, it will rear its head sometime in 2010. Here you go. Right? The Labor Department said the producer price index rose by 0.7% in March compared to analysts' forecasts of 0.4%. Gee, the government was wrong about numbers. Shocking. 
Uh, a rise in gas prices also helped push up the index. Still, there was little sign of budding inflation in the report, which measures the price changes before they reach the consumer, excluding volatile food and energy costs. So, again, remember, your government, when they calculated inflation, no longer includes food and energy in the cost of inflation. Because they move too much. It's not accurate. That's what they say. So what are your primary expenses in life other than your mortgage? Probably food and energy in the form of electricity in your house, gas for your car. Not part of inflation anymore. Now it is core inflation. Make sure you get that, right? So let's just get to the bottom line here. Food prices jumped by 2.4% in March. The most since January 1984. Vegetable prices soared by more than 49%. Vegetable prices, 49%. Where do we get our vegetables? A lot of them in the United States come from California Central Valley, the San Joaquin Valley. All right? The most in 15 years. And then a cold snap wiped out much of Florida's tomato and other vegetable crops at the beginning of the year. I thought we had global warming, not global cooling. Gas prices rose 2.1%, the department said, the fifth rise in six months. In the past year, wholesale prices are up 6%, uh, which much, much of that increase driven by higher oil prices. But excluding food and energy costs, they have risen only 0.9%. Consumers are facing smaller price increases as many retailers are reluctant to pass on the higher costs. Last week, the Labor Department said the consumer price index only rode 0.1% in March, excluding food and energy. Remember, the core consumer index was unchanged. So our inflation rate in March was one-tenth of a percent, but it was zero if we exclude food and energy. Core consumer prices rose by just 1.1% in the past 12 months, the department said last week, the best showing since January 2004. So it's good news that we're not having inflation, is what they're saying. Low inflation has enabled the Federal Reserve to keep short-term interest rate it controls at a record low of near zero in an effort to boost the economy. The country's worst recession since the 1930s has kept a lid on prices. Its high unemployment and tight credit have crimped consumer spending power. That has made it harder for companies to raise prices. Now the big picture starts to emerge. And if you listen to that and you take it all in, you're going to get what's really happening and how it has much larger effects than we would expect. It's not just about the price of grapes at Kroger. Here's what's going on. The price of food through the supply chain. Remember what I said about this in the beginning. Your food does not come from a grocery store. It ends up in a grocery store before you buy it. There's a huge chain of events that occurs between somebody sweating their ass off in the field so that you can eat tonight and that food getting to that shiny package so that you can buy it under fluorescent lighting and really cool misting systems where they have thunderstorm sounds go off before they miss the produce. That chain is in there. That chain along the way, there's a, a part of the distribution system called wholesale. That's where it's sold from the last step of the chain to the retailer. So everything that goes on in the chain up to that wholesaler has increased in cost by a lot. So the wholesaler is charging the retailer, Kroger, Tom Thumb, Winn-Dixie, Albertsons, whatever, whoever you buy from, are, are paying more for the food before they sell it to you. But... Because you're dead broke and you're out of money and people are holding on to their money, the retail stores have to not raise prices as much. So they pay 
2% more, and they only raise the price they're selling to you by half a percent, effectively cutting their margin by 1.5%. And those numbers are arbitrary, because I'm sure they're all over the point, place. But you get the point. A retailer cuts its margin. When the retailer cuts its margin, especially, so it's like putting things on sale without advertising it, especially at a time in, in history where people are holding back their spending, their revenue and their profit both go down. Many of them are publicly traded companies. What will that do to their stock prices? When companies have stock prices begin to drop, pay out lower dividends, and investors begin to pull their money out and send it elsewhere, what do those companies look to do? They can't increase their revenue, right? It's impossible. Because if they raise prices, you'll go elsewhere. You'll go to a different store. So what they then do is go, people don't really care about our top-line revenue. They want to know what our profit is, and they want to know what our dividend back to the shareholder is. So they lean out cost. What's the easiest way to lean out cost in an operation like a grocery retailer? Reducing your labor force and cutting wages. So what does that do to an economic recession? It makes it worse. And it makes working at a grocery even less desirable than it is already for a lot of people. And of course, the problems that we talk about in the agriculture system don't go away. They continue to cause the same cycle to pass through. And sooner or later, the retailer has to raise prices, and they do get passed on to the consumer. And when that happens, we actually start to see the results of the inflation that they're hiding. And you go to the grocery store and you pay more for everything from peanuts to peanut butter at that store as inflation begins to rear its head. Now, the company has, this is the economic side of this. The company has leaned out the cost during that period. As inflation hits, their sales go up because they're charging more. And as more money begins to flow because of that, their profit looks really, really good. And their stock price starts to go way up comparatively to what it had been doing in the past. So everybody looks at the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the, and the NASDAQ and says, look, the economy is getting better. The green shoots are bearing fruit. Or some other nonsensical cliche to make us feel good about it. And that happens not just in agriculture and not just in gro grocery. It happens everywhere. It happens in every commodity. There's your false recovery I've been talking about. That's how it works. You hide the inflation. Companies have to adjust to the problem. Somewhere along that distribution channel, the cost increase gets held back for a while. Eventually, they can't hold it back, but they've already leaned things out to increase profit or to survive. And when the profit comes, it looks good because no one understands that it's inflation yet. It's just the standard thing. Hey, prices are supposed to go up. It looks like recovery, and boom. And underlying it all in this one sector, destroying the very goose that lays the egg that passes through the chain. That's why you got to grow your own food. Now, at least you think the government's the solution. Wait till you hear the last story. And it's going to sound good. I'll read you the story. This is from The Guardian which covers Prince Edward Island like the do, is what they say. This is the Canadian newspaper. Local news. Listen to this. I, I, it just, I, I, God, I, I have trouble reading this. Because it sounds like man discovers that the sun rises in the morning. Scientists finds compost in potato fields cuts erosion and improves yields. Did you know that if you put compost in a field... 
You'll reduce soil erosion, increase crop yields? Did you know that? Oh, but this gets better. Let me read this to you. After over a decade of study and research, a research scientist from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Charlottetown has cause to celebrate this week, which has been designated as Soil Conservation Week in Canada. In a recently published study, Linnell Edwards shows that adding compost to potato fields significantly reduces erosion and improves the soil's health. The study was published in the Canadian Journal of Soil Science with 11 years of research in the Wilmot Valley watershed. Adding compost to the field had a major impact on soil properties such as the water holding capacity and drainage, said Edwards. We found the soil's physical conditions were improved almost 30% with compost, he said. Increasing the water holding capacity was the main benefit, causing rot runoff and sediment loss to be reduced by 15 to 33%, said Edwards. That's because more of the rainfall went into the soil than over the soil. When it goes over the soil, it brings sediment with it. Is this guy a rocket scientist? Seriously. Soil erosion can potentially cost farmers millions of dollars every year, and the physical damage left is especially visible on Prince Edward Island. Heavy traffic and tillage from potato farming degrades the, degrades, uh, degrades the two washing away. It's not me not reading right, folks. This guy can't write, I guess. A reduction in erosion wasn't the only thing Edward saw improve with greater water holding capacity. The extra water increased the potato yield by 9%, he said. Gee, if crops have more water, they grow better? Uh, soil will better drain water through and hold more of it. The more you can receive, the more it will hold on to. <laughs> I know this sounds positive, but to me it sounds ridiculous. Heavy tractors and trucks that drive over potato fields compact the soil. This is where adding compost makes the difference, said Edwards. The integration of compost loosens up the layer of soil and helps drainage. Did you know putting compost in a field loosens the soil? Where are the possibilities of scaling up uh, because compost is available and easy to find? Moving in a commercial direction will require changes in traditional ways of storage, handling, and spreading of compost. People would have to be willing to change and think with a greener mentality, he said. The, ad the adoption of the techniques at a commercial scale is a problem because we're dealing with a culture that's accustomed to an inorganic culture. Now, I know some of you are listening to this and you feel like me. You're like, this is ridiculous. And some of you are going, what's the problem? Eleven years to figure out that if you take compost and add it to agriculture... It reduces soil erosion, improves water tension, and uh, water retention, increases fertility. How many of you out there that garden did not already know this? So it took a government study on an island in Canada, 11 years to figure out something that we all already knew, to reach a, a dramatic conclusion that it works, but that the industry itself would be resistant to it. What if they spent the last freaking 11 years incentivizing the industry to make the change, educating the industry about the change, showing them how to do it, versus having some person on this one little plot throw compost on it and measure the results. I'm sorry. Again, this I said this is like saying, you know what? We've just discovered that it's a really bad idea to stick your genitalia into a hornet's nest. 
We spent 11 years to figure that out. Now, what we really need to do is convince people that it's a bad idea to stick your genitalia into a hornet's nest because we live in a culture where that's what people want to do. That's how this thing reads to me. This is why I don't trust corporations. This is why I don't trust the government. This is why I trust you to do something. This is why I trust you to make a difference. This is why I trust the small farmer with 10 acres that wants to farm five of it and reserve five of it. This is why I have no faith in the ability of government to solve problems. Because this government, not our government, but our government does the same stupid crap. We know this. This government just spent 11 years to figure out something that anybody, that's organic, an organic gardener, a basic backyard gardener, a permaculturist, or most people with any intelligence whatsoever about gardening off the street could have told them, yeah, when you take organic matter that's absorbent and nutrient-rich and mix it into your soil, it breaks the soil up, reduces erosion, retains more water, and all of that leads to better results. And here's the part that got left out. Remember how the Ogala aquifer and other aquifers around the world are being depleted and we're having less and less water to work with, right? Remember how phosphorus is being depleted in the mines because it goes into the field and what doesn't get used by the plant is washed away? Remember how it can only go three places, stay in the field, less erosion, more phosphorus stays in the field. Into the plant, compost the organic matter that's not consumed, put it back on the field, phosphorus back in the field. Right? Remember that. So we can irrigate with less water for the same results and retain the nutrients. We don't need GMO crops and all the salt in Australia, instead of growing a wheat that lets us salt the soil more, if we started doing this, we would stop eroding the soil, we would increase the organic matter. Here's the thing, just the way the salt soil works in Australia, we have a whole bunch of soil, We lose 10% of it. We lose only 1% of the salt. The total salt content of what's left is higher. If you put the compost into the soil, you increase the organic matter and the total components of the soil that are not salt, you decrease the relative salt percentage in the soil, and now you can grow crops again. So what we've seen is every problem that we've seen today can be fixed by the use of compost, and it took this person 11 years to figure that out. And the problem is that nobody wants to do it because they don't like it. Because it changes the way we have to do things, but it actually fixes all the problems. Now, I can't say compost in of itself fixes all the problems, but it's, it's a good step in the right direction. And everything that comes with composting will make the problem better, reduce the problem, eventually destroy the problem. In fact, let me put it to you this way as I close up today so you really understand the the, the problem as a whole. There isn't one form of current large-scale modern agriculture that doesn't destroy soil. The only thing that they tout is how slowly they destroy soil. So someone will come in and they'll say, our method uh, only has uh, 50% less soil loss than conventional farming. 50% less. It's too much. When you garden organically, when you use a permaculture mentality, when you stop tilling the soil and you keep heaping organic matter onto the soil every year, when you dedicate some portion of your land to actually grow things to create compost, not 100% just for pure production, when you go in with this holistic approach, it is the only way that mankind 
can make soil better every year. This is what's amazing. In backyards all across America and all across the world, where people garden and grow their own little farms, when they practice organic techniques, when they practice positive techniques, when they use organic material, when they use humus and sheet mulching and compost, every year their garden gets better. Every year their soil gets better. If you test the soil year after year after year, it gets better and better and better. And on every commercial farm in America, if you test the soil one year, it's worse than the year before and worse the next year. Complete opposites. And you really have to think about that. You really have to think about that. what that means, again, for your children, your grandchildren, and dare I say your great-grandchildren. And what kind of world we're leaving them behind. This is Earth Day. Well, here's an idea. Instead of driving a hybrid so you can walk around thinking your farts don't stink, how about you actually do something to address the problem? Grow a carrot or a stick of celery. Make a difference. Improve soil. Prove that it can be done. Demonstrate that it can be done. And show it to other people. And you know what? If you really want to make a difference, here's a little project for you. After two or three years of working your soil, and adding organic matter to it, and you have that beautiful, rich, black, loamy soil, put about two handfuls of it into a Ziploc bag and go out to a farm where they're farming corn or soy and take about two handfuls of the soil out of the uh, farmer's field and put that into another Ziploc bag. And anytime somebody wants to just simply understand the difference, throw those two bags of soil in front of them. They say a picture's worth a thousand words. Well, those two, two bags of soil are probably worth 10,000 words. Go show it to the farmer whose field you took the soil sample from. Show them the difference. Folks, Earth Day is supposed to be about saving the planet, not adding the, uh, the agenda of a politician. So if you want to make a difference on Earth Day, grow something. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, because it all gets spent.